Well, I assure you, I did not plan it this way. I doubt that I could have if I tried, but um, we are finishing two books <laughs> on one day, uh, which I think is a sure sign of the eschaton. So um, we should be expecting the return of Christ imminently. Um, but in any event, this will be our last sermon on Song of Songs. I hope it has been edifying for you, has helped you to understand the nature, not just of earthly marriage, but of course the nature of the believer's relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would, turn with me to Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. And today we're going to be taking a look at uh, verses 5 through the end, which is 14. But before we do that, let's take a moment and ask the Lord to bless our time of reading and ask for his help in understanding his word. Sovereign Lord, as we do come into your presence once again, we are forced to admit that we are feeble creatures, that we are a people who are slow to understand. We need your help, Lord. We need your inner illuminating grace. I do pray, Lord, that you would help me to unfold and exposit these things. I'm grateful for the men who have written upon this particular subject. It is no easy book to apply. And Lord, I do pray that uh, we would remember that it is part of Scripture and all of Scripture is profitable for us. Therefore, I pray that this day we would profit in the reading of it. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us joy in hearing your word. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verses 5 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There, she who bore you, brought you forth, the Shulamite to her beloved. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. The Shulamite's brothers We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. And if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. The Shulamite, I am a wall, and my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hermon. He leased, or Balchimon, he leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins to Solomon. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. The beloved, you who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. The Shulamite, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As we come to the last verses of Song of Solomon, a lot of commentators, uh, <laughs> there's, let, let's just say, differences of opinion about what these, these final verses are referring to, who is being referred to, relationships and so on, why certain things are being mentioned. And it's important at this point to remember, uh, as we are looking uh, at Song of Solomon generally and considering it, it, it is not a narrative. It is not also a history. It is poetry. Uh, 
and it has to it a poetic element. It is woven together to please the ear. It conveys biblical truth to us. In everything that it teaches us, it is true and complete, and yet it is not like a history that moves from one part to another. There is something uh, here like a symphony, so to speak, where you get to a, a closing tune. One of the things that you will notice with some composers is that they like to finish out their work in the same kind of theme that they began, uh, so that it, it, it has a, uh, a fullness to it, a movement from beginning to end, and then a recollection of the initial themes. Now, this is something that comes up in the Bible as well. Obviously, the Bible is not music, although the Psalms were initially set to music, but there is something called an inclusio in biblical uh, narrative, and uh, poetry in particular. In biblical studies, an inclusio is a literary device. It's based on this principle of bracketing. Uh, bookending, if you will. You start with a certain uh, group of themes and then you end with a certain group of themes. It creates uh, what uh, the, the academics call an envelope structure. It consists, therefore, they say, of creating a frame by placing similar material at the beginning and the end of a section, although whether this material should consist of a word or a phrase. It's a recollection of the material that came before, a hearkening back that reminds us of main themes and shows that they're important. And it also places a beginning and an ending that we can understand. It sets us, it's used to set aside often in larger portions of work, particular thoughts and so on. Um, one of the things that you should note here in, as part of this inclusio is that the Shulamite gets the last word. She got the first word and now she gets the last word. She gets to finish off the, um, uh, the poem. But uh, in here we see uh, a hearkening back to some of the themes that we discussed before. Uh, the theme of the vineyards. You remember the vineyard was uh, speaking not just, obviously, of physical vineyards and procreation and so on, but uh, her own vineyard. She was the vineyard that Solomon desired and so on. Her brothers are again brought up. We haven't seen her brothers since 1-6, uh, and now they come back in 8-8 eight, eight and 9. Uh, the companions who are listening and then the daughters of Jerusalem. And finally, we have this conclusion to this wonderful poem, this love poem, as she speaks to her beloved and her beloved speaks to her. We see also a, a recollection of the, the question, who is this? Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? It doesn't receive an immediate answer. In fact, that question, uh, although it comes up several times within the text, it never receives a definite uh, answer. Um, as somebody who prefers a more historical narrative and its flow, that's kind of frustrating to me, but, uh, you know, this is, this is poetry. And poetry often disappoints me in the way that it's framed, but since this is divine poetry, I can't argue with uh, the way it's set up. Now, the question is, uh, is answered, and there we have this answer. I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. Uh, there she bore you, uh, uh, brought you forth, and so on. Um, and the word awaken there is the same word that's used. It's uh, actually the Hebrew word ur, uh, and it is used uh, when she says to, you remember, again and again, she has said to the women of Jerusalem, do not awaken love before its time. Don't stir up passion. Don't stir up eros, romantic feelings. 
before uh, it is time for them to be set forth, before they are framed in their proper place. And that's one of the themes that's come out again and again within this poetry, that there is a good place for those feelings, those feelings of, of romantic desire, of arousal to occur. And that is, of course, within the covenantal frame of marriage. And so she says, don't awaken that feeling before the time is ready for marriage. And now she reminds him uh, that she had aroused him under the, uh, the apple tree, and uh, she is not speaking of from sleep. Apples, you will remember, were a symbol of romantic love in this poetry, and indeed in the poetry of the era. Um, but here, it's not just a few apples, it's an entire tree full of apples. I, I uh, awakened you under the apple tree. What we are, we are getting here is a reminder that in marriage it is not just a little bit of romance uh, now and then. In, uh, it is rather a, a lifetime of romance uh, that is offered to us, uh, a, uh, a living supply. And we have uh, a connection also there, and when she speaks about your mother bringing you forth, uh, between romantic love and ultimately one of its main aims, which is childbearing. That's something else that, although it has not been a main focus within the poem, it is not entirely removed from it. We don't disconnect love, marital love, from procreation and bringing forth of children, which is one of the aims, and something else that is good, and, uh, and at no point spoken ill of within this poem. The idea is that within marriage we have their needs and their desires finally being fulfilled in the right place and pointing to the right things. We remember that this poem is not merely supposed to set before us an idealized marriage between a man and a woman. Of course it does. It does set before us the ideal love relationship, even with its ups and its downs. We remember that there was that time of, of disconnection when he comes to the door and he knocks and, and she doesn't want to get up to answer it. She says, I've already gone to bed. I've taken off my clothes. I've washed my feet. I'm not coming to the door. And then her heart is moved. She yearns for him and she goes out once again. So we saw the, the time of disconnection. She has to search for him and once again uh, they are brought together. But we have a picture of the believer's relationship with Christ, more importantly, being set before us. But the idea, therefore, in this section is that we have marriage has been consummated. They are now married. Uh, we have the promise of children coming. Their desires are being fulfilled. And the next generation is going to be brought forth in this context as God intended. That's something that we've forgotten in our society, that that romantic love, uh, marriage, the marriage of two faithful people in a covenant union is supposed to be the place where we're bringing forth a new generation. And then in turn, they have their desires fulfilled in the midst of that relationship. And then the next generation, and then the next generation. This idea that we would be singular people, entirely autonomous, not connected, not in a one flesh relationship, who enjoy anonymous hookups now and then and produce no children whatsoever, that is entirely alien to the Bible, and yet something that we find more and more uh, commonly in Western culture. And as I've said, as we've been going through this book, a major reason why there is so much loneliness within our society right now. We've never been so connected with social media, admittedly. I mean, we can't get away from it. I can't preach without people being on social media and still talking to other people around the world. And yet, we have never been more disconnected, more lonely. 
There have never been so many people dying alone without children, without offspring, without, without spouses all around the world. We have, uh, we have now societies such as Japan that have more adult diapers being sold than children's diapers, literally. We have ignored God's will for marriage and childbearing at our peril, and it has produced a terrible, terrible harvest. Well, we were reminded of the way it's supposed to work, and let us, as the people of God, once again embrace it and cherish it, love it, appreciate this wonderful creation ordinance that God has given us. As we've been looking at the Song of Solomon, I hope you've gotten a new appreciation either for your own marriage or the marriage that you hope to enter into at some point in time, that it would be something that you would desire, or at least, and I shouldn't say, no, it's not at least, it's actually at the very most, that you would have a greater appreciation for the relationship that we have with Christ. Although we may never enjoy marital bliss here on earth, we know that there is a union the Christian enters into with his savior or her savior that goes on forever, that's unbreakable, that's the closest relationship that can ever exist. Well, in any event, um, Ian Duguid, speaking of these uh, verses that we just went over, said, the goal of sexual arousal within marriage is not merely mutual pleasure, although in the song it certainly includes that. It also hopes and longs for the joyous outcome of pregnancy and childbirth, even with all of the pains and challenges that parenting belongs, uh, brings. rather. And of course those, those challenges belong to parenting, but they're good challenges. They're intended for us to grow and for our children to grow in the midst of them. She asked him, you notice also, to set me as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm. Now, a seal in the ancient world was a symbol of, uh, of, of ownership. It was a symbol that the, the person had, had written this, that it was theirs, that it was their decision, uh, their, um, at their commission, their, deci- uh, their bill of sale, whatever. Uh, The king would put his seal upon something to indicate that it was from him. And she asked that he would seal her upon his heart and his arm. The Shulamite wants the king to feel a total ownership of her in his heart. She is committed to him, and she wants him to be completely committed to her. That's the idea of marriage. It's not 50-50. It's not an equal partnership. You do your part, I'll do mine. It's rather a complete and utter lifelong commitment, 100%, 100%. Now, the reason she says heart and arm is the heart is the location of thoughts and feelings in uh, Hebrew literature. They didn't have this disconnection. We, we can disconnect emotion and thinking. We think of logic and emotion as, uh, you know, I think Star Trek had a lot to do with that, with Spock and, and so on. Uh, but the, um, uh, the way it is actually set forth in the Bible is that thinking and feeling go together. I remember when I'm, when I'm preaching that I can't disconnect logic and feeling, that it shouldn't be all of one or all of the other. Indeed, it can't be. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it very well when he said that uh, preaching should be logic on fire. There should be an emotive force behind it. There should be an appeal to the emotional depths of man. And when we read the Psalms, for instance, we see the anatomy of the soul. We see thoughts and feelings set before us. And so too, in this wisdom literature as well, those things are combined. So she wants to be part of his feelings, but also constantly upon his mind. Let me be part of everything you think. 
everything you do. It should be the case that we can't go an entire day without thinking about our beloved. We can't do it without, we can't live, we can't act without continuously having them in our thoughts. How will this affect them? How will my actions here affect them negatively or positively? How going forward as a couple should we act? And so there should be that constant connection. It's an expression of that one flesh relationship actually lived out. The one flesh relationship that began in the garden. Remember Adam's first words considering the wife. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And then he went on to say, of course, uh, there was that, that, that great and wonderful declaration that the man should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and that they should become one flesh. That should be an indissoluble principle. There should be something deep there, more than just a physical relationship, but an, uh, an intertwining that becomes greater and greater as time goes on. Um, what it's odd, but it comes to mind. Uh, my wife and I, over the years, have developed what we describe as shared brain principle, um, where uh, we'll be in a situation, somebody will say something, and we just have to look at each other because we are both thinking the same thought at the same moment, you know, kind of, the, uh-oh, um, or, or whatever it is. There are many times I don't have to ask her opinion, although she would always like to be asked what her opinion is on something, but I, I will instinctively know it because we've been so long part of one another's lives. That should happen in a relationship. There should be a gradual deepening as time goes on until you get to the point where you leave this particular life, but together growing in your understanding of one another, your appreciation of one another, your ability to, to correctly assess one another, and to appreciate even the flaws of your, your spouse. We remember that marriage is, of course, the yoking together of two sinners for life, but each of them brings their own idioms, brings their own particular quirks and so on. And we should be able to understand, forgive, and even appreciate those things. She then goes into this interesting um, uh, declaration. She says, for love is as strong as death. Now, uh, ordinarily, you don't see love equated with death. It's not, that's not a staple of Western poetry. You know, the, oh, my, my beloved is like death to me. You know, that, that kind of thing. It just doesn't ring uh, right. But it's an interesting comparison because death is, of course, tenacious. It's unstoppable. It can't be bribed. And once you enter into death, you can't be released. Not until resurrection, of course. And so she's saying that this is something that is, that can't be turned back from. That's the kind of love that she is speaking of. And then she makes a comparison here with jealousy, uh, which is an inevitable part of ardent or fierce love. There'll be jealousy involved in it. But the comparison, and this is the important thing, we, whenever we speak of jealous, oh, you're jealous. Generally speaking, we, it's a negative comparison. It's something bad, but this is not a negative comparison. This is a jealousy that isn't a bad thing. I want you to hear what Ian Duguid, uh, who's uh, incidentally his commentary on, on the um, uh, on the song is, is probably the, the commentary, if you were going to preach on it or teach on it, that I would recommend as, as your backbone. 
however, if you just want to read some, some wonderful verse, some homilies, some sermons explaining uh, the Song of Solomon, then the, uh, really the place to go is G.I. Williamson. His, his series of sermons on it are just superb. But anyway, Duguid says this. He says, love marches hand in hand with jealousy, which is fierce as the grave, or better, Sheol, as the HCSB has it, for Sheol is much more than the grave in the Old Testament. We, think, uh, we typically think of jealousy as a negative emotion or refusal to share something that ought to be shared. However, in the Bible, it is often used positively to describe what we call, might call zeal or passion, the assertion of rightful claims of possession against anyone and anything that might stand in our way. It is an attribute of God himself who claims exclusive rights over his people. You remember, your God is a jealous God. He deserves your love and yours alone. And he will not share them with other deities. And we see that in Deuteronomy 4.24. So this is a good jealousy. It is a love that is burning and ardent. It's a vehement flame. That's the way it's described here. A most vehement flame. You see that at the end of verse 6. But the words for vehement flame there are shelchibath yah. This is literally the fire of God. And that is quite the comparison. The love that she experiences for the beloved and the beloved's love for the Shulamite in here is a fire that, that fills. It's a fire that is burning vehemently. It's not a, you know, a smoking flax or uh, a mere glowing coal. It, it burns, but it, it cannot be put out. And it does not consume uh, and waste. One of the things that we see about real fire is that fire spreads and then it burns out. But this is a fire that keeps going. It's like the fire that Moses encountered in the burning bush or the fire that fell upon the apostles at Pentecost. A fire that indicates the presence of God is there. A fire that cannot be removed. A fire that cannot be quenched. She makes that point. Many waters cannot quench the kind of love that is being spoken of there. And here's where we really get the idea of the idealized love, the perfect love. The, the agape love that we always strive for in marriage but, but seldom ever get to. And more importantly, most importantly, as a matter of fact, the love that Christ has for his people and the kind of love that his people should have for him, having his spirit within their heart, a love that cannot die, a love that cannot be quenched. Now, many waters, she says, cannot quench love. Many waters is a reference to the sea, the sea itself, the ocean, cannot put out this fire of God. Likewise, floods, and floods symbolize sudden and unexpected disasters that inevitably come into life. You remember that when Christ makes that comparison between the two houses, the house built on solid rock and the house built on sand, the one common between the two of them, aside from the fact that they're both houses that are bought on, but built on different, entirely different pieces of geography, is the fact that storms come. And the storms can blow down the house that's built on sand, but they cannot bring down the house that's built on the solid rock of hearing and then doing what Jesus Christ tells us. Here, we see a flood that cannot quench the fire of love. The, the sudden, one of the things that you have got to understand before you enter into marriage, and if you are already into marriage, understand this, the storms are going to come. And they will beat against your house. They will test the firmness of your marriage. They'll also test the firmness of your love. Things will happen. Your loved one will disappoint you. Your loved one will say things and do things that you never in a million years imagined that they could do. Will your love remain in the midst of that? 
in the midst of those sudden, unexpected turnabouts. One of the saddest things that I've seen is that in marriages that are not very, uh, very solid, uh, marriages that don't have that, that common shared faith, that absolute uh, uh, faith in Christ, uh, when um, they have a great disappointment, particularly in the, in the birth of, say, a handicapped child, a severely disabled child, often that stress will be enough to break the marriage apart. And the wife will find herself raising that child alone, the husband having said, I, I didn't sign up for this. This is more than I can bear and leaving. So this is not the kind of love that's being spoken of here, the passing love, the love that's there for a little while, the erotic love, you know, that burns fiercely for a few moments and then transfers itself to someone else. This is a love that cannot be put out by this flood. This is, this is true love. This is princess bride love. This is the, the love that cannot be bought, we uh, learn here, she says. Not for all the money in the world. If you tried to purchase it, you would only find yourself despised. This is that special agape love that exists between the Lord and his people. It is a, it is a lifelong jealous devotion uh, that exists between one man and one woman. And it, it begins... And then it goes on to the moment of their death and nothing is supposed to be able to separate these two people who are joined together in this kind of a love, this kind of a marriage. Um, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I do a marriage, I declare what the Lord has joined together, let no man separate. This is supposed to be something that goes on forever and ever. Um, in verse 8, we return once again, though, to the brothers. They, they make their appearance. Uh, once again, the father is absent. It seems that uh, her, her father has died. They are her keepers. This is clearly a flashback to when she was younger. Now, the discussion is interesting. Uh, they start out by saying, we have a little sister, and she has no breast. I never thought, incidentally, when I, uh, when I became a preacher, that I would in the course of preaching, use the word breasts as often as I have going through the Song of Songs. This is an interesting, uh, interesting occurrence, but there it is. So um, they comment she has no breasts. She is not yet an Alma in the Hebrew, that is a virgin of marriageable age. And they discuss what are we going to do until she, she gets there? What are, how are we going to prepare? Because ultimately they want to marry their sister off. They assume that she will be part of an arranged marriage. They speak of the day when she will be spoken for. Someone will come and claim her hand in marriage and put down a dowry that they will profit from. Uh, the idea behind this, therefore, what they're going to do is they're going to, they compare her to a wall, a city wall. She is compared to a wall and a door, um, which is, you know, there's the, the city wall, the idea that her, her, um, her virginity should be inviolable. It should not be uh, able to be attacked. They're going to protect her chastity until the day of her marriage, but a door as well. There, there is the idea that when uh, the time for marriage comes, that she will open to her loved one uh, and that they will beautify her. Uh, they're going to build her up with silver and cedar to make her desirable uh, until she reaches that marriageable age. And then, of course, they, receive, uh, they expect to receive a dowry for her hand in marriage. And then she recounts, yes, I am a wall, but I have definitely come of age, hence the reference to breasts like towers. 
uh, and she has become the possession of her beloved. And in him, she has found peace in her willing surrender to her husband. She married, but it was not merely an arranged marriage. It was not a marriage for silver, the kind of marriage that her brothers expected. She has found that till death do we part true love that uh, everyone desires. Now, there is, um, uh, commentators argue uh, like crazy about this. This is one place, for instance, where, as I said, if you're going to make uh, any, any commentator your backbone in going through uh, this book, uh, Ian Good. it was ARP, incidentally, is the, the guy that I recommended, but I, I differ with his, um, his feeling about whether Solomon is, is the person here. He, um, he does not believe that Solomon is the beloved. He doesn't believe that Solomon is the husband in question because he just had too many wives, and rather he's a bad example. Well, I believe that Solomon wrote the book. I don't think he would write himself into the story as the bad example. I really don't. I think he is, uh, that this is his idealized marriage, what he understands is, is best. Um, and one of the reasons for that is uh, in the earlier, uh, uh, the, the, when she says, I am a wall and my breasts like towers, then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. The word peace in the Hebrew is what? You guys know it. Shalom, right. Now, what's the word for Solomon? What's the name Solomon in Hebrew? Shlomo, right. They are both related. Okay, the, uh, the name Solomon, Shlomo, comes actually from Shalom. Uh, so this is a double entendre. She has found peace. She has found Solomon. So uh, it's a, a greater peace, but also a reference to him. Now, um, in verses 11 and 12, I will give you the other view, just so you can take a look at it for a moment and decide for yourself. Uh, in 11 and 12, some people think uh, that the vineyard that's spoken of, the vineyard at Baal-Hemon, uh, is a metaphor for his harem. He has so many wives that he has leased it to other keepers, everyone to bring, his, uh, to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. And then she goes to my own vineyard was before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred, and so on. She, you may have all of these wives, but uh, I, am, I am my beloved's special wife, and so on. That's, that's why they think it's not Solomon who's being spoken of, and the beloved is somebody different. Um, but uh, I, I believe that that is actually not the case. Uh, Baal Haman, uh, which means literally Lord of Haman, was a site uh, near Shunem, which is uh, near uh, where the Shulamite would have been raised, or may have been raised at, very, uh, at the very least. And it was customary... Uh, in the ancient world for an absentee owner like Solomon actually to lease out his vineyards to other people to take care of because the king doesn't have time obviously to oversee his own vineyards and to bring in uh, the profit from it just as the king of England, uh, good King Charles III, uh, he owns many, many properties, but he oversees very, very few of them. He leases them out to other tenants and receives revenue from them. Uh, so did Solomon in his time. And the idea is that the brothers were the ones who were caring for his, uh, his, um, his vineyard, that he had leased it out to them. It had been entrusted to uh, him, and that's how the Shulamite came to know Solomon, or that Solomon came to see the Shulamite, and she drew his attention. The brothers earned uh, by caring for his, uh, his vineyard 1,000 shekels, but they also cared for and protected the other vineyard. And this is the, the while we've got the, the flashback, and the other vineyard is the Shulamite. 
And now she requests, um, so say those who don't believe that Solomon is the bad guy in this, uh, that her brothers get 200 shekels profit. Um, so the idea is that uh, she now has another vineyard as well to tend, which is uh, apart from her own, that is her own husband, to tend his vine uh, vineyard. Finally, in verses 13 and 14, you have the epilogue to the poem. Uh, they're married, and there is this, this promise of lifelong enjoyment. But there is this idea. Um, in 14, in order to make it more understandable in the English, they say, make haste, my beloved. The Hebrew is actually flee, my beloved. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's odd. Um, I want to read you uh, Duguid's uh, interpretation of it. I think he's probably right here. Paradoxically, the place to which she sends him away is her own body, represented by the mountains of spices. It seems that she has learned that the separations that life necessitates can never really take them away from each other. He leaves her only in order to return in due course and enjoy the pleasures of a gazelle on the mountains of spices, a vivid image of the delights of lovemaking, going back to 2.17, a love that cannot ever let the beloved out of the person's sight is an immature insecure thing true love is able to send the beloved away in order to receive him back in due season where there is real love absence can only make the heart grow fonder so their their love continues and their desire from one another continues uh, the husband says the companions listen for your voice uh, he longs to hear her voice and others uh, appreciate her wisdom one of the things that we've seen throughout the poem is the Shulamite's wisdom in the ways of love and her, uh, the way that she counsels, for instance, the women of Jerusalem, don't stir up love until the time is right. Don't stir up love until it's in the midst of uh, that ardor, that desire, uh, that, uh, that lust, if you will, until you have uh, the right setting for it, until marriage is that possibility. Keep it at arm's length until that time. So she has been a, a voice of wisdom, and the companions now appreciate her counsel and he does as well he longs of course to hold her in his arms he desires to uh, to kiss her and she to kiss him as the way the poem began but notice their love is never satisfied it's never absolutely fulfilled there's this this yearning this longing that goes on um, because they, they can never fully satisfy one another now that is something um, we can be content but we cannot be fully satisfied in any human relationship. Our, our final longings are never to be satisfied by another person in this world. That's something that we need to remember, brothers and sisters. If you try to make a person the place where you find your final satisfaction, you will be sorely disappointed. Because the only one who can fill the infinite void in the human heart is the Lord God. One of the things that I have seen is, is how, um, in, in many cases in marriage, particularly women, have tried to make their husbands into their God, in essence, to depend upon him utterly. Uh, and then he has either betrayed them or he has left them uh, through death, for instance, and they are utterly crushed. The one who they thought would always be there, who would always be their pillar, their rock, the one they could stand on, he suddenly disappears. And that shows us that we should not be depending upon people, ultimately, to fill our heart. It must be the Lord. It has to be the case. One of the things that I have said, even as we've looked at this poem, is that you should be able to say to your spouse, honey, you will always be number two in my heart, and it be the truth. The first person in your heart must always be the Lord 
He must be the one whom you love. In fact, it should be the case that both of you love the Lord so much that loving one another is just a natural outcome of that. Uh, But it is a wonderful thing when you find somebody who you can be content with and you can have that union that takes you all the way through to death. I would recommend this. Those of you who are not yet married, do not get married until you find a person who you are sure It is till death do you part. A person who you know loves the Lord with greater fervor, if at all possible, than you do. So you have to love the Lord with all your heart in order simply to keep up with them. And who you know will be constantly pushing you towards the Lord. If this is somebody you have to drag to church, that is not a good mate. I hate to say this. That certainly women will not be a good spiritual leader. It must be the case that your ardor for the Lord is at the very least equal. Seek to find somebody who loves the Lord even more than you do, if you possibly can, and somebody who has that integrity, that faithfulness that you know will carry you through, God willing, to the end, to death do uh, do you part. Now, there is a good thing that comes from that longing, and uh, I'll leave you with Ian Duguid again. I, I've overquoted him in the sermon. I, I apologize, but he said so many good things. He, he, he said this also. This longing is intended to remind us all of a greater love than any human love, a love for which marriage provides the best picture that the world affords. This jealous love of God for his people has triumphed over death and Sheol through the cross and now invites his bride into his eternal embrace to embark on a journey together that stretches beyond our own deaths and the grave, onwards and upwards forever. Our human love, our human marriages, should point us inexorably towards Christ. That longing that exists between us, that, that can never be fulfilled by one person, that must be finding its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our seeking of him. May your relationships here on earth point you to the greater relationship that exists between Christ and the believer. And if you do not yet have that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and you have been disappointed with your relationships here on earth, I would invite you sincerely to to find your final fulfillment the the ultimate love the ultimate care and compassion and consolation in the lord jesus christ go to him and come before him and on bended knee ask that he be the one who cares for you forever let's go before him god our gracious father we do so thank you lord for this image of the idealized marriage that we've been going through we thank you for the song And we ask you, O Lord, that you would help us to have not just this marriage uh, between two individual humans on earth, although that was a great blessing, Lord, and not something to be turned away from, but to be ardently desired. But we pray, Lord, that most of all, you would give us that relationship that goes on into eternity, the relationship between Christ and the bride. We pray, Lord, that you would make us yours forever. May it be, Lord, that we are sealed uh, with the Holy Spirit until that day when Christ comes to deliver us from this present evil age. And we long for that day. May the bridegroom appear to take the bride into the chamber. And